0: Welcome to DreamMaker, a podcast brought to you by First National Bank of Syracuse. At FNB, we strive to make sure that every life we touch is improved. Join us for each episode as we cover a wide range of topics, from financial wellness and marketing to mental health and ways to enjoy life overall. We may even teach you a thing or two about cultivating healthy soil. We are here to improve your life and so glad you've joined us today. Now, here are your hosts for today's episode of DreamMaker.
1: Welcome this week to our DreamMaker podcast. I'm Chris Floyd, President and CEO of the First National Bank. And, uh, you know, as always, we're getting started. I guess we're starting to start to call it season three here with the new year of our podcast. As always, we're looking for different ways we can help our customers and, and people in our community to be more successful. And and one of the ways we do that, we sometimes as we visit with people, we run into, you know, what issues are they having, what things are struggles in their business. And... Uh, you know, in farming, I think, especially in other, you know, a lot of areas are having problems with labor and, and getting good employees and keeping them. I think farming's had that struggle for quite a while. Um, but today I was able to run into, um, have on today, Gabriel Wist-Hazen. He's a program director for golden opportunities international that work with H2A program workers. And it's kind of interesting over the years we've had, um, a lot of customers or a lot of H2A workers as for farmers in our community come in and be customers of ours. And, and uh, so it's kind of neat to meet those guys as they come over and, uh, and work over here and help out our customers. And uh, it's kind of neat to meet those guys. And and we've had several end up staying in our communities, which is kind of neat as well. So with that, Gabriel, why don't you kind of give a, kind of give me uh, your history and story and how you got to where you're at.
2: Yeah. Good morning, Chris. So for, Our company was actually founded uh, in 2000, Um, and so we've been in business for pretty much 22 years. Uh, The business was actually founded by my mother. Um, We are from South Africa ourselves, and uh, our family came over here in 1999. Uh, My dad actually did come over on a professional work visa, but uh, we definitely uh, saw the potential and the... the possibilities that the United States had to offer, and that's kind of what brought us here as a family. And once we got here, we had some family members back home that contacted my mom and said, you know, how can we send our kids over there? Because for a lot of um, the people in South Africa, the unemployment rate is extremely high, and there are no jobs for them. So some of the kids were graduating from high school, and they didn't really know what to do because Getting into college was expensive, and there was no jobs available. So she actually reached out to some local farmers and uh, was able to find a a job on the H2P program. So in the first year, it just started out with really friends of family um, and uh, brought them over, and they came and worked, and the employer was really happy with the program and really enjoyed it. And from there on, we kind of met the custom harvester president at the time, He uh, found out about us and he asked my mom to help him with some paperwork and then he started spreading our name and it started becoming a business. Um, Before she knew it, she wasn't just helping people. She actually was running a business, which is kind of neat. And the business kind of just grew from there. And uh, about 11 years ago, I started working for her and assisting her with the filing process. And then right now we're completely family based business. My sister works here as well. And so we kind of handle different aspects of the business. I handle the paperwork side, helping employers get approved for the H2A program. And then my sister works with the placement side, helping recruit and place employees to come and work here. So right now we're based out of Sevierville, Tennessee, uh, but we really work all across the United States. Uh, We cover several states in the United, uh, in the U.S. Uh, We work with, uh, Anybody from custom harvesters to farmers, we even have a pheasant farm. So there's a lot of different aspects of agriculture that does qualify under the program. And uh, that's kind of how it all started and how we got to where we are today.
1: Oh, wow. So that's kind of a neat history. (laughs) Kind of just, and like you said, you basically just somebody had a need and just kind of started doing it and it kind of just grew. So that's pretty cool. So, like the H2A program, how long has that been around and has it been? several years or when did it really get started?
2: So the h a program has actually been in place for a long time. Uh, it originally was called the guest worker program and it was started in 1917. And it was specifically for employees coming in from Mexico at that time. Uh, the program was not really called the h a program at that time, but it was a guest worker program. And so they brought employees from Mexico to supplement uh, sh- labor shortages in the United States after World War One. So that program kind of went on until 1964. At that point, um, the program was discontinued because there was um, some worker mistreatment under that program. And in 1952, the H-2A program was actually started um, under the Immigration and Nationality Act. So the H-2A program since then, I mean, it's really grown a lot um, just since we've been in the business. Uh, To give you an example, back in 2015, Uh, There was about 139,000 employees that came in on the program. And last year, that number went up to 317,000. So it more than doubled in six years.
1: Oh, wow. That's amazing. So 317,000, and that's total throughout the whole country, pretty much? Yes, that's correct. Okay, cool. Um, So like you mentioned, well, is it pretty much all agriculture? Or have to be agriculture. Yeah, so there's
2: there's different programs. The H-2A is specifically for agriculture. The H-2B is the non-agricultural side, but that program uh, is really difficult because they have a cap on it, so they only approve sixty-six thousand visas a year. So there's definitely not enough visas available to cover the need. On the H-2A program, which is the majority of our business, it is specific to the farmer on the farm work. Now there are three different categories to the H2A program, if you want to call it that. Uh, for example, there's the regular H2A filing that's the most common, and that would be specifically for the farm, for any job duty that occurs on the farm, and usually related to the crop production. So for example, employers that uh, if you need employees to assist you with planting, um, you know, spraying the crops, uh, applying manure on the fields harvesting the crop, hauling the crop from your fields to the storage locations. All of that definitely qualifies as H-2A if it's on your own farm and it's your own crops. And that is the, the basic H-2A program and the easiest one to apply for. The second category is they, a few years back, they kind of carved out a category for custom harvesters. So even though custom harvesters do not own the fields or it's not their crop that they're actually growing themselves, They can file under the H-2A program because they will file as a farm labor contractor. That allows them to then travel between uh, different states or different uh, clients and then do the harvesting for them. Now That is specific for combining and harvesting of grain. So if you do just the trucking part of a custom harvester, that would not qualify because you're not actually combining. Um, And then the third category is more for your pickers and growers. Uh, For example, if you hire employees that travel between your uh, produce, it's probably the best example I can give you. So, for example, if you're a watermelon grower and you need people to come pick watermelons, typically the companies that come and work from site to site to pick your watermelons, they would be a H-2A farm labor contractor without the custom harvester exemption. The custom harvester exemption really is that you do not need to get a farm labor license where the plant, the pickers need to get the farm labor license, which is a different process on its
1: own. Okay. Out of those, like, so out of 317,000, you know, that in the country, how many do you think go into each bucket? Or do you have no, I'm not sure
2: on the statistics on that, um, but I'm sure that's something I can look up and get back to you on.
1: Uh, okay. Just how, like the people you help, what percent kind of go? you know, like half of them go to this program or that program or just ballpark? Just kind of curious.
2: The majority of our filings would definitely be for the farmer themselves on the regular H-2A program. Okay. Uh, and then I would say probably 20% would be custom harvesters and there's 5% would be farm labor contractors. Now, farm labor contractors, okay. the other category that qualifies under that that we do do quite a few of is uh, manure applicators. So if you, all you do is apply manure on fields, you can fall under the H-2A program as a farm labor contractor.
1: Okay, huh, interesting. So like, um, how, so they can't be here all the time, right? So what defines when, how long you can have a worker for and what kind of defines that?
2: Sure. So the H-2A program is specifically a seasonal program. So in order to qualify, you have to be a seasonal agricultural operation. And that is probably the best example to give why if you have a milking parlor and you need employees to milk in your dairy, you would not qualify for the H-2A because you typically milk year round. So any crop of any job duty that does not um, fall under a seasonal nature would not qualify for H-2A. Uh, If you look at that's why I I use the crop as an example, because the crop season is seasonal in nature. You know, you plant, you grow it, you harvest it, and it's done. So that's the easiest program, uh, the easiest way to get an H-2A approved. If you have livestock, for example, hogs don't qualify for the H-2A because their cycle is so short and it happens several times a year. Uh, Livestock by itself is cattle. You can file for like the calving season, but then you are you have to prove to the Department of Labor that you run a seasonal cattle operation, which gets a little tricky because most employers have cattle year-round. So there are different things that you can file um, under the H-2A program. It's just a matter of if you as an employer can prove that it is the seasonal job that you're trying to pull. But that's why I'll, for most of the purpose of this conversation, I'll kind of focus on the crops because that's the easiest one. Now, besides being seasonal... You also have, uh, there's a limit as how many months you can file under the program. Uh, 10 months is the most. So you can do any number of months less than 10, you just cannot go over 10. You have to have at least two months in a year or in a 12 month period that you do not have H2A workers on site. Uh, I have employers that just need help in the fall. So they only file for say August through December and then they're done and that's acceptable. But once you establish your season, Department of Labor wants to see that that stays consistent from year to year. Uh, and they do not want that to change. So if right now, if the process takes 60 to 75 days. So I'm actually right now filing for April of 2022. Um, and if you needed employees from February 15th until December 15th, that's your normal season. If you file this year, you would file from April until December and the Department of Labor will allow you a one-time chance move that date up without uh, creating a lot of uh, evidence requests on that uh, and then so next year you would be able to file for February through December but after that it needs to stay consistent so they do not like it when you change your dates because they see that you're changing your season and then you have to explain why is your season changing you have to provide evidence to that. effect. so the other part about the type program that is important is that You can never replace American help in order to hire foreign help. And in order to participate in the program and get approved, you have to advertise your position on the the state actually advertise it for you on their state workforce website as part of this process. And so when they post a position, if there's any U.S. applicant that's interested in that position and applies for that position, you are required by law to interview that candidate and if they're qualified, offer them a job. Now, I mean, typically employers don't call me if they can find local help. So we, a lot of times we just don't see local candidates being interested, but it's very important that they keep track of any local applicants, because like I said, you cannot, you can never replace local American help with foreign help. And sometimes people think that these programs replace American help, but it doesn't, uh, the people that call me, nobody would go through the expense and the process to go through the H2A program to get foreign labor if they can hire locally.
1: Right, yeah. And it's uh, and I guess, so like if you advertise, you say that's through the whole state. So like you could run into issues like where we're in the Southwest corner of Kansas. If somebody applies in northeast from Northeast Kansas, they want to move out here, then that's kind of, then you're good. You kind of keep moving on the program then. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, typically, if you post a position with the state workforce, if you do get a candidate, say you say you filed for one um, employee, and you do get a local American candidate that's interested and you want to hire them, then that actually would cancel out your application with Department of Labor if you fill that position with local employee. Um, most employees, like I said, for our filings, we just don't see local interested candidates, um, but if there are any. It usually is a case where if the employer interviews them and they're qualified, they want to hire them.
1: Okay. So you said it takes about 60 to 75 days when you start the process.
2: Um, so, yes, the process takes 60 to 75 days, 60 days being the absolute latest you can submit before your start date and 75 days being the earliest the stable accepted application. Uh, During that process, we start out by filing with the state workforce. They will do two things. They will post your position on their website to see if there's any local American help. And the second thing they will do is they will schedule a housing inspection. Because under the program, you are required to provide employees with free furnished housing. That housing can be any housing that would meet OSHA standards or requirements. Um, but it does need to be furnished with the basic things in there for the employee to stay there, prepare their meals, and so on while they work for you. If the house has a kitchen and they can make their own meals, then the employees are responsible for their own groceries and their own meals. But if your housing does not have a kitchen, then the employer has to provide the employees with three meals a day.
1: So I had an example of, like, how do you see, like, Somebody, well, some people try to put a lot of people in one house or is there like requirements of like, you know, I wouldn't imagine you could kind of like an like old time bunkhouse, I guess, full of guys. But how do you, what kind of requirements on the housing?
2: So the housing can be a lot of employers use a farmhouse. There can be a mobile home, a trailer, but the requirement is 100 square foot per person in a room. So if your housing is big enough bedrooms, you could technically put multiple beds in a bedroom. But usually, you know, bedroom sizes are about 100 square feet. So it's about one person in a bedroom.
1: Okay. do you ever see like people bring families out when they come over or is it just more just the one worker or is that how does that handle or does it?
2: We have a wide range of employers filing, you know, for many employees, especially like harvesting crews specifically. Um, And then you have some farmers that file for one. Um, The the question when it comes to spouses, the H-2A program is not really set up for spouses, even though there is a way to bring a spouse over because it is a seasonal job. Uh, The H-2A visa itself is for the employee and that's sponsored by the employer. But then there is a visa classification called an H-4, which is for spouses or children. And so technically an employee, once the employee gets their approval on the H-2A and they can come in, if the employer approves it, they can then bring their spouse on the H-4. The challenge with H-4 visas, though, is that the consulates in the home countries are the ones that determine whether that's approved or not. Since it's not a sponsored visa, it's up to the consulate officer. And the consulate officers typically want to see that the employee's intention is to return back home because this is a seasonal work program and they should not be here year round. So as soon as you start bringing a family in and if you're here for 10 months and only in your home country for two months, sometimes that becomes a challenge because how can you prove that you're going back home if you don't have a home anymore because you sold it to be here? So sometimes H-4 visas do get denied because the consulate officer feels that it's not their family's intention to return back
1: home. Um, I guess in how many career, how many countries do you have workers do you help bring into the United States? Maybe best place to start.
2: So, sure. There is actually, uh, the H-4 program has 88 countries that can come in and work in the United States. Now, we don't work with all 88. We have offices in South Africa. And so there's two locations in South Africa that recruit for us, and they've been with us since we started the business. So we don't use any other recruiter except our own. And then we also have an office in Mexico. So those are the two countries that we typically recruit from. Now, anybody that wants to come work here from any of the 88 countries could technically come in. And uh, we have had certain situations where an employer comes to us and they say, you know, I met this employee from Australia and I really would like to hire them. Would you be able to do the paperwork? Yes, we can do the paperwork and we can bring that employee in. We can work with them directly to get them through the concept. But we just don't have recruiting offices to present an employer with resumes to look at. Now, um, we do have several countries that we do that for. Uh, during the years, you know, several employers have met people that have come here and work and they kind of come to us and say, you know, these employees are the ones I want to hire from these other countries. So we do help them with that. It's just we don't recruit.
1: Okay. So even for recruiting, you kind of just specialize in the certain areas. So that makes it a lot simpler, I think, for you guys then. So if you're, um, so like, say you got a farmer and he's wanting somebody. So how does he pick, I guess, out of a pool of people? How do you kind of I guess, match make for lack of a better term of what employee ends up with what farmer or how do they choose, I guess.
2: So typically what we do in our process, and I think different agencies might do a little different, but what we do is, Uh, Once you file and we file the state, we get accepted by the state, and then we file the Department of Labor. Once we get an acceptance from the Department of Labor, that's really a good indication that your application will be approved and there will not be questions or things that we have to explain. And that's usually a good time for us to start working with the employers to see what they're looking for in candidates. So if they tell us, you know, I want somebody that has previous combine driving experience, I want them to be able to drive a grain cart. Um, I want them to have John Deere experience. I want, you know, so they can list different things that they're looking for specifically. And then our application software that we use is actually very robust when it comes to that. So when an employee fills in an application form with us, it asks them a ton of questions as far as what their skill set is and what, you know, what they have to offer. Um, and then once, we take that and we kind of take the employer's requirements. We are able to filter that down and then present to the employer candidates that meet what he's looking for. And once the employer looks through that uh, list of uh, candidates and tell us, you know, these are the candidates I would like to interview. What we do then is we work with our offices in South Africa and the employee to set up interview times where the employer uh, is able to take those phone calls and talk to these guys. Directly, that's what we found is by far the best because each employer knows what they're looking for and they know um, They know their equipment. They know the experience level they're requiring So it's easy for them to ask those candidates the questions They need to kind of drill down if they're really the fit they need or the fit they want for their farming operation Uh, Once the employer then says, you know, these are the candidates. I would like to hire Um, We will then extend job offers to those employees with an employment contract that's according to the H-2A regulations. Uh, And then the employer would uh, would start the employee side of things where they prepare their documents and get it ready. Because once the employer is approved at the Department of Homeland Security, then the employee will submit their information to the U.S. consulate in their home country to get a visa the visa is issued specifically under the employer's name. So the employer is the sponsor for this employee for the period that the employer filed for. Um, and then once the employee gets their visa, they're able to travel to the United States and work for that employer for that duration that they filed
1: for. Okay, so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they're, so what happens, like, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it doesn't happen very often, but you get, somebody comes over and they're just not a fit once they actually get, does that, what happens then? Or you ever have that happen very often? or
2: You know, most employees do work out really well. And that's why this program is so successful. But there is, just like anybody, there are some employees that might not be a good fit for your operation. And we've seen where uh, one employee might not be a good fit for one operation, but then if they come back the next year for somebody else, it's an excellent fit and they Keep coming back to that employer. So a lot of times there is a fit component to it as well. Um, but if if an employee does not work out, and um, the best way I can explain this is, you can terminate an employee just like you can terminate a U.S. employee, but it needs to be for cause. So you cannot just terminate somebody because you don't like the way they look or you know any of the discriminatory discriminatory reasons. But if an employee is not able to get his CDL license and you require him to have a CDL, then that would be grounds for termination because he's not meeting the contract requirements. If uh, in that case, if you terminate the employee, then we notify Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Labor of the termination, which will cancel that employee's visa.
1: Times do they keep coming? I guess, or you know, or is it kind of like oh, I'll do it while I'm in my twenties and not when I'm older? Or do you see much differences that way?
2: So a lot of employees, they do like the stability of going back to the same employer. And so if an employer wants them back and if they want to come back, that's not a problem. The next year the employer files, we can bring that employee back to them. So we do have a few employers, especially ones that have filed with us for more than a decade, that have some employees that have returned to them every year. The, there are some employers that um, if the employee is a long-term employee that the employer can decide to sponsor them for a green card and to make them permanent so i have had some of that happen in the past as well where an employer says you know this employer's worked for me 6 7 years and i just want them here full time working for me and they can go through the green card filing process which takes a long time it's not a quick fix um, but once the employer gets that Green card approved, and the employee can then stay here permanently.
1: Oh, okay. So that's um, like we say, it takes a long time. How long does it take to do that? If you have, say, if you wanted, to- it
2: takes about three years to go through the process. The the thing of the green card application, a green card does not give an employer uh, of employee status to work in the United States until it's approved or until you get work authorization. So during that time when you're filing for a green card, the employee still needs to be on an H-2A or some other visa classification, and they can come in and out up to the point where they file at Homeland Security. Then um, you need to either be in the United States and file for an adjustment of status, or you need to go home and wait in your home country until that green card is approved and you can go pick it up.
1: Okay. Well, that's interesting. So you had some people... Wow. 10 plus years. So so they kind of get that. And probably there's a lot of benefit for everybody because they're kind of, they feel like, or they know how the farm operates and all that little stuff. It makes it a lot smoother for everybody. I imagine if they have that consistency.
2: Yeah. We've actually seen that, especially if, if guys come back every year, you know, every year the employer has to go through the process to see if they can find local help. And if they can, they can hire these guys. What turns out to be good is some of these guys become like a foreman for the farm. You know, they they know what to do, they know when to do it. So it actually helps employers out a lot when you have somebody that
1: returns. Is there rules on how you pay them, or is it can you adjust things, or how does that work?
2: Yep. So the HST program is very specific on pay. Um, the annually, the Department of Labor releases what they call the average effective wage rate. Now, once that rate um, comes out, it is. Um, it's based per state. Some states are the same. Some states are not. So, for example, there are some states that kind of move together, like North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, Nebraska. They're always the same rate. Um, right now, for 2022, the rate for those states would be sixteen forty-seven an hour. Uh, then you have your sovereign states that's a little lower. So, like Georgia, for example, is eleven dollars and ninety-nine cents an hour. The highest state on the program is California, and that is $17.51 an hour. So it's based on the area of the region that they're working in, and you are required to pay the employee the rate for your state under the H-2A program. If you plan to offer more than that rate, you have to disclose it on your H-2A application. So you have the right to hire somebody at $17 an hour if you want, if you live in, um, in Kansas or Nebraska, but the... What's important about that is that's also the rate you have to pay your U.S. workers. Your U.S. workers that's currently working for you can never make less than your H-2A workers. So the other part of the H-2A program is the rate on your contract is the rate you have to pay. You cannot just pay them whatever you feel like or pay them less than that. That will get you in trouble if you get a wage and hour audit. Uh, If you want to pay the employees more because they're doing a really good job, you have to disclose it in your contract as far as how that's determined. So if you're somebody that wants to give them longevity increases because they have worked for you for three years in a row, you have to have the language in your contract to let the Department of Labor know that there is a possibility you'll be paying more than that contracted rate you also have to have some kind of policy to address how you calculate that rate. It cannot just be, well, I feel like giving this person $5 and this person you know, $2 or whatever bonus, but it needs to be something that's said that everybody knows how to attain that because again, it also applies to you. To as well.
1: Okay, so you could have like a contract, say like, it may be year one, you're going to pay this, and, and maybe do you tell them right up front that, okay, if I get somebody for five years, is your wages will go up like that, or is it more of a year-to-year type of?
2: It can be a year-to-year. Um, so there, the average effect wage rate also adjusts annually. Um, so last year, the rate for Kansas, Nebraska, and South Dakota, North Dakota, as I used an example, it was fifteen eighty nine. So it increased itself. Um, so there is an automatic increase built-in. I, there was a few years back, I saw a decrease in one state, but most of the time they do increase. But I, for example, I have a client in South Dakota that they have had employees that have worked for them for many years. And they kind of build it into their contract that say that for every year the employer returns, they're willing to pay a dollar per hour more. And so if that's disclosed in your contract, as long as you pay the U.S. workers that have the same skill set, the same
1: so do you can like can they give them like a bonus at the end or is that legal or not? If you disclose
2: it in the contract that you will be doing a bonus and if you have a structure of how you calculate that bonus and it's available to you US workers, yes you can.
1: Okay. So you can't just like, hey, here's 500,000 bucks. Thanks for helping. And you can't really do that if you don't tell them up front and those types of things. Yeah.
2: And it, it becomes a bigger issue when you get a wage and hourly audit and re- they review your payroll records and they notice that you did not uh, follow the H-2A contract. Because if you have to think about it, when you advertise this position in the beginning of the H-2A process and you say that you're going to be paying 1647 an hour for Kansas, then if you end up giving $500 bonus, but you did not disclose it, the thinking behind it is if a U.S. employee saw that they could have had a $500 bonus, that might've been a reason for them to apply, but because that wasn't advertised to them, they did not apply. So you always want to make sure you don't put them at a disadvantage.
1: Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Because To me, I'm thinking like, well, man, I might want to be generous about a good worker, but I can see where on the other side, how it would be, not perceived that way i guess so yeah that's why we got people like you to kind of keep everybody else out of trouble
2: (laughs) i always tell employers it's good intentions that get them in trouble i don't have any clients that work with us that intentionally try to abuse the h2a program but it's because they're like man this is a good work i really want to reward them that's what gets them in trouble yeah
1: yeah (laughs) oh wow so um most of well i guess maybe let's stop back here um the housing inspection so that seems like when you said OSHA and that like makes you nervous um, how easy is it to get through the housing inspection
2: the states are really great to work with on the housing inspection so the deadline for the housing inspection to be completed is 32 days before your start date so typically when we start the process and the state notifies you I always encourage employers uh, get that housing inspection scheduled as soon as possible because if there is anything that needs to be adjusted or corrected at your housing location, that gives you time to get it done before the deadline and it wouldn't delay your application. Now, some of the things that, I mean, you have to have the house, we really don't have a problem with houses being denied. I would say it's usually, there might be some things to change or fix. Um, So once you fix those, then your housing should be fine. For example, screen doors is one that gets employed a lot of times or screens on the windows. Even though you have air conditioning in the house, OSHA requires you to have screens on the windows. Um, and a lot of employers think, well, if you have air conditioning, why would you be opening the windows anyway? But it needs to be on there. So little things like that is what sometimes needs to be done, adjusted on the house um, in order to get it approved. But once you make those adjustments and you get that back to the housing inspector, they, they should approve you without any problems. And like I said, the housing inspectors, all of them have been doing it for a long time, and they they have the knowledge to tell you what you need to do in order to get it approved. Um, Now, obviously, the housing conditions need to be good. So, it's, I mean, if you try to put them in a house with a leaky leaky roof, then that's not going to work. So,
1: Okay. So it seems like those guys are like they're trying to help, essentially. So they'll help you kind of whatever you need to do. They can kind of coach you through that then.
2: The the states, like I said, they've all been part of the process for a long time, so they they know how this works and they know that employers need these workers, so they're really good about giving employers advice as well.
1: One thing I just popped in my head too is maybe think about, especially talking about uh, wages and whatnot. How does uh, health insurance and things like that? You know, that seems that's a big cost for a lot of farmers, and I don't know how did that, how's that handled, or something happens. While they're over here, and they get sick or something like that? So, the
2: H2A program does not require that employers provide H2A workers with health coverage. Now, they are required, however, to provide them with workman's comps. So, workman's comp certificate is something that we have to provide when we file the application because the Department of Labor wants to make sure that employees are covered in case they get injured on the job. Now, as far as the health insurance, that is not something that needs to be provided since these are temporary workers, uh, so they don't qualify for.
1: Do you ever have workers, I I don't know, I guess I'm picturing, I don't know, maybe it's not that way, that you guys, so if the worker has an issue, you know, you probably guys get those calls, I'd assume. Do you have things happen, or how do you, I guess you kind of worry a little bit about something major happening while they're here, I guess, and how they're helped out, I guess, so what kind of issues do you usually have to help those guys with, if.
2: So, most employers, so, you know, for us as a company, we take care of the filing process for employers. We want to make sure that they get approved, that their guys get here. But once the guys arrive, that's really where the employer takes over. And it's 100% their employee. Uh, they put them on their payroll, they pay them directly, and they would follow their normal HR practices as far as uh, dealing with any conflicts or anything like that. Uh, employees typically call us if there's something that's not being followed on the H-2A contract and they don't know what to do. So if they're being put in a house that they're not supposed to, then I'm definitely going to call the employer and say this is not acceptable because the H-2A program doesn't allow that. You have to keep the guys in the house that was approved when we filed the process. So sometimes employers, again, you know, they think it's a good thing. They found a, find a better house and they're like, well, I'll just switch the guys over to this new house because it's bigger, it's nicer. Well, you can't do that. The house that was approved when we started the process is the house that they have to stay in for the entire contract period. So if the other thing we might get a call about is if an employer doesn't pay like the contract says, you know, say every other week or every week, uh, that would be a call we would get. Is And then I would follow up with the employer and just kind of go over the contract again. I don't really have those problems. My employers that I work with are definitely They're trying to accommodate the guys as much as possible. And a lot of times it's something that they can just sort out between the two of them before I I need to get involved. But I definitely, as an agency, I mean, it's our name is connected to this as well. So I do not want employees to come work here and have a bad experience either because then they're not going to use us in the future. And if you have skilled guys, we want them to come back every year uh, because that just gives us a better pool of qualified candidates. So we would definitely – Step in if there's something that they're not being treated right now.
1: Jobs that kind of fit every kind of skill level for the most part?
2: Yep. So, um, you know, obviously under the crop side of things, which is the majority of our clientele, getting guys that have equipment operation experience is key. So that is by far the highest demand position that we fill. Um, But we always get guys that would love the opportunity to come to the United States, but might not have had that background. And so we have some employers that are willing to train. And so if they get an employee, you know, they're more looking for a good fit and they're willing to train them how to do what they need them to do. And so sometimes we get lucky in a situation like that where. And I think it works out well for the employers too. they get somebody that's willing and eager to learn that sometimes even better than somebody that has experience, but only wants to do certain things. So what we see is we see a wide range of candidates coming in, but we do have some farming operations, for example, our pheasant farm, where it's more manual labor, picking up eggs and uh, checking birds, loading birds and so on. So that is something where in that specific situation, they don't need somebody that has truck driving experience or grain cart operation or stuff like that. So we're able to bring guys in there that might have just graduated high school but really would like to get into the H2A program. And then we also have uh, some operations where uh, apple orchards, for example, you know, fruit and vegetables, uh, those guys can be trained on how to trim the trees and train the trees and so on. But might not have a lot of experience before. So there is a big range, but by far it's more for the farming operations. The employers really want guys that have skills. in Okay. And so
1: like let's take South Africa, for example, is there probably not a very good opportunity for those guys to get that experience there? I imagine is there, or they wouldn't be coming over. So
2: the reason, the reason we work with South Africa um, is because in South Africa, we find that, the history of South Africa is very similar to that of the United States. So South Africa was settled by the British and there was a lot of Europeans settling down into South Africa. So South Africa's country itself has a lot of the technology that the United States does. And so the farming operations there use John Deere tractors and all those things. So it's very easy to transition guys from South Africa and bring them here to work because they come from similar background uh, and skill sets based on equipment. Now, they might not have some of the big pieces of equipment that you get in the United States, but they would have similar ones, so they would have a very good understanding of the equipment. And um, where when we work with our employees from Mexico, we, that's a little different because in Mexico, the employees we're able to recruit from Mexico does not speak English, um, so the employer needs to be able to speak Spanish or have somebody that can in order to work with them. And then the other thing is the equipment in Mexico is not the same. So on that side, it's usually more your manual laborers that are coming um, from there. But as far as South Africa, you know, because the British influence, South Africa's uh, second language requirement is English. So there's also that language barrier is not there.
1: Oh, okay. I didn't realize that part. That makes a lot of sense. So like when they're making, say, the 16-something an hour here, What's that relative to what they're getting back home? And, and, you know, I guess how important is that for those guys? Well, workers like them here, how big a deal is that for them?
2: It makes a huge impact on their lives because the exchange rate right now is almost $16, um, 16 rands for $1. So the money they earn here, sending it back is 16 times the amount. Now, the cost of living in South Africa is considerably more than in the United States so that money I mean it, it gives them a good salary in South Africa but it's not like it's making them rich either. It's just being able to provide for their families and uh, save up the money they need to go to college and stuff like that. Um, South Africa the, because of the exchange rate you know things are more expensive there as well. So there there is a I mean they definitely come here because it's a first of all it's a great opportunity for a job and be able to earn some income. So we actually have some employees that come over that are married with children, and they come here to work and support their families back home. And if it wasn't for this opportunity, they would not be able to do that. Um, And then you have some college, high school graduates that's looking to go to college. So they plan on maybe doing this for four years or something like that, and then going on to college once they have money saved up. So there's different reasons people come, and we have different age groups that come. You know, our oldest employees will probably be in their 60s, uh, you know, the guys that want to drive trucks and so on. Um, so they come here and they try to find jobs where it's maybe not so physically intensive, but maybe more just driving the trucks to hold the grain and so on. So there is a big range of employees that come and they come for multiple reasons. But most of it is because back home, unfortunately, there is just not enough
1: jobs. Okay. What's it like, um, I guess, for... I guess, you know, to me, it almost be kind of like exciting, but kind of scary as well for those guys that come over, I guess, the first time. What kind of things do, um, have you seen certain farms do things that make that work smoother and work better than others? Or what kind of, you know, if you're a farmer, what things should I be trying to do to make it successful?
2: I think the biggest thing is uh, when you hire employees from another country for the first time. And you're hiring people that have not been in the United States before. The guys that have been here before, you know, they've done this so many times that it's kind of second nature and they're excited to come back and so on. But the new guys, it's all new to them. So, you know, they don't know what to expect. You, I grew up in South Africa myself, so I knew the first time I flew to the United States, you have this idea of what the United States is. And then you get here and it's like it's just like everywhere else. You know, you have... Your farming communities but in your mind you almost come here with the idea that everything here is big skyscrapers and just you know very developed and then you get to nebraska or kansas and it's just like home yeah <laughs> so i think that actually it works well when the guys get here just to get them acclimated you know show them around so a lot of times if they've never for you know your service that you provide if they've never opened a bank here before they don't know the process so Um, getting them set up on that side, assisting the employees. You know, the employers that I think get the best uh, results from employees is the ones that take care of their employees, obviously, Um, and want to help them and make it easy for them to adjust to the U.S. and the lifestyle here because it is a cultural difference. Um, You know, South Africa, I think any of of the clients out there that hire South African workers will tell you they love to barbecue. And so that's something that makes them very happy. Um, And that's just a very cultural thing in South Africa. So uh, little things like that is just trying to make them feel comfortable here. The employers that have by far the most success on the program are the ones that treat their employees well. Because if you treat your employees well and they want to come back to you, that's the best recipe for all parties involved. The employers that, and you know, unfortunately it happens and luckily we don't have a lot of that, but the employers that have the guys come over and just sees them as a worker and they're here to work as hard as they can for, you know, the most uh, most they can do. Those employees, they also want a, a balance. They want to be able to um, fit, fit in and experience some new things, but they, they want to be treated well. So I think that's the biggest key. The employers that just treat them I have a lot of employers that actually use this. They say they become like family because they're here for 10 months and they, they are with you every single day. So if you treat them like family, they're going to come back. Well,
1: that makes a lot of sense. Cause yeah, I <laughs> like that. So it makes me think, cause I'm thinking in my mind is like, you know, um, if I'm somewhere is like, okay, then I can go see things or like, you know, maybe like here, maybe end up, you know, then go to Denver or somewhere. Do they have, is there rules like how much time off or things like that, you know, do you have to give them so much time off or depend on the type of business or um, does it matter?
2: Since it is a work contract and they're here to work, when you fill, the, fill out the H2A application, you have to list the hours that you're offering the employee. And so, for example, the Department of Labor wants you to really estimate what you think these employees will be working on an average on a weekly basis. So, you know, it needs to be a full time position, obviously. So it needs to be more than 40 or 40 or more. The contract, actually, HRA contract allows you to go as low as 36. I don't have any employers that do that. But, um, you know, 48 is very common. Um, if you think that they'll average a 48 hour work week, they can work more. And there's no, during the busy season, obviously, when you're in the fields planting or when you're in the fields harvesting, you're going to work long days. And that's just what it is. But over the whole contract period, they need to average what you're putting on the contract. Now, there's a guarantee built into the H-2A program. It's called a 75% guarantee. And so if you put down 48 hours a week, then you guarantee 36 hours per week. So at the end of the contract, you need to make sure in order to fulfill your contract with your worker that you've averaged at least 75%. The reason that's important is if you get two weeks of rain and you can't get into the fields, you know, you want to make sure that over the whole contract period, that still balances out and they're getting their hours. Um, and so you don't have to offer them that for every single week. It's based on the whole contract. So there might be some weeks where they work a lot, some weeks where they work less because of rain or whatever, but they want to make sure that overall they're getting the hours they're offering. Um, The other thing about the guarantee that's important is once you've reached 75% of those hours, and this has luckily never happened, but for us anyway, but say you had a tornado come through and it wipes out all your crop. Well, now you don't have work for these employees. Once you've got to your 75% guarantee, you are technically allowed to cancel your contract and send them home early. Now, there are some things you have to follow in order to do that, but that would end. You can end the contract at that point because of that reason. Uh, it's more as a stipulation to cover the employees and make sure that they get something for coming here, but also allow the employers if there is a situation, natural disaster or something, cancel.
1: Okay, that makes sense, and so they can know, like the employee can know, like if you're on a custom harvest run, you know it's going to be lots and lots of hours. But if you're working for a regular farm, you can kind of get a feel for them they can know what what to expect i guess whether like say okay if it's a 48 650 or how many hours they are planning on so so that way they're not surprised too i guess of what they're expecting but
2: we always kind of we don't we don't get a lot of calls from the guys but we get calls when they're bored so when they're sitting at home and they have nothing to do and they want to work and they want to earn money and They're ready to go but there's no work you know that's usually when we get a call and they're like well this is not what we you know we want to save money we want to earn money so usually i tell the employers if you give them hours we'll keep them happy
1: hours and barbecue there we go
2: (laughs) yep that's right
1: (laughs) so like i don't know this is probably a random question probably can't do that but like can they do like side jobs while they're here or not
2: No, they can only work for the employer that files the application. So you cannot contract labor out or borrow them out. Um, They need to work for the person that's filing the application under their tax ID, because that's in order to file an H-2A, the employer has to have a tax ID. And that's what they use. uh, that, That tax ID or that company needs to be paying the employees for their wages. And so they can only work for that employer for that. Unless you're a custom harvester, but you're still working for the custom harvester, you're not working for the farmer.
1: Maybe think them getting here. Does who? Um, how does that process work? Do they have to pay to come over? Or do you, the farmer pays, or how do you arrange that?
2: So the the there's two things about transportation on the program that's important. The first thing is once they're here, you have to provide them with transportation from the housing to the worksite and back into town at least once a week so they can buy groceries. Now, that doesn't mean you have to give them a vehicle, but it does mean you have to provide them with transportation. A lot of employers will allow them just to drive a farm vehicle because they can go get a U.S. license, and then you don't have to hold them up and down. So that would be the first part of it is just making sure they have transportation. But then there is two things you have to reimburse the employee for. The first thing is their consulate fee. Uh, The consulate fee right now is 190 U.S. dollars. And there is a proposal out that that will go up to $310, but that's not been officially um, put in place. But
0: for the $190, that
2: needs to be reimbursed when the employee gets here. Uh, that is their cost at the consulate to get a visa issued into their passport. Um, the second thing is you have to reimburse them their plane ticket. So the employee will buy the ticket up front, and then once they get here, you have to reimburse them according to h every. One of the things with the ticket, how we work as an agency is we, we're not affiliated with any flight agents, but we do work with one. Um, we have no financial gain or anything that we get from her for working with her. She just does an excellent job. That's why we choose her. But what we will do is once the employee's visa is issued, uh, we will reach out to her and say, hey, we have these employees that need to fly. She'll try to get them all on the same flight and then send us a flight quote for the employer to approve. That way, since the employer has to reimburse the employee for the plane ticket, they have say in how much that ticket costs. So once you look at that quota, you're like, Yep, that's good for with me, we'll let them know and they'll let the guys pay the ticket so they can fly in. And then you'll know how much to reimburse them because they buy it in RAND, which is a South African currency, and you'll we'll reimburse the dollar.
1: I know like I think one of the guys, uh, local farmers here, like they'll have they'll pick the whole crew up in Denver at the same time or something. It seems like. And yeah, at least get all that coordinated makes a lot easier anyway. So.
2: Yeah, she does a really good job. And what's nice about working with her, if there is a situation like we've had some deaths in the family where a guy needs to return home, we can call her up and say, hey, we need a ticket back. Um, because this employee needs to go home for a period of time. Now, Before I say too much on that, I don't want people to think that they can just go back and forth. That's really not the case. But in an emergency situation like that, the employee would be allowed with the employer's permission to return home for a period of time and
1: come back. One other thing that just kind of popped in my head too was like, how has the COVID pandemic deal affected the ability to get guys back and forth and, I'm sure it made a little different, but.
2: That's actually a very good question because, um, you know, I always thought that the H-2A program had its challenges until 2020. Then I learned that the challenges I thought were challenges are really not. Um, there was a lot more to it. Uh, so back in 2020, uh, South Africa, the country itself went into lockdown. So they did not allow any flights in or out of South Africa, which really, our business, where most of our employees do come from South Africa, it really put us in a bind. Uh, We were able to work um, with a lot of groups that did a great job. Uh, Senators got involved and so on to get an exemption for H-2A workers to come from South Africa. And we were able to get that issued so that they can fly in. We had to charter flights in order for the guys to get here. But which was a whole different bowl game. And I definitely learned during that experience that I do not want to be a flight agent. That's not my future. But we got all the guys here and they were here late. A lot of contracts starts in February, March, and April. That's by far our biggest filing season. And some of the guys did not get here until June, July, and August. So it really put a lot of employers in the bind because they didn't have the guys to plant, and it was it was not a good situation for sure. Uh, Then we had that exemption, which got us through 2021. We had a lot of workarounds, but we got the guys here. And then in um, November, they lifted the ban from South Africa with COVID. And so we're all like, we're finally returning back to normal. And then on November 28th, the Biden administration reissued the ban on South Africa, so we were back to where we were in 2020, but luckily that was re, um, removed uh, end of December, and so the guys are currently able to go to the consulate, get visas, and come in. So it's been a COVID definitely have created quite a quite a roller coaster for us, but at the end of the day, the guys are able to come and the employers are able to get their guys, which is all we care.
1: About. Oh, good. Yeah, I can imagine, especially when that last deal, you know, basically almost origi- Well, I don't know if they originated but they found it first there in South Africa. It's like oh that's good it's gonna cause problems so but yeah but it's you know you think about whenever you uh, hear stuff
2: like that it just makes you cringe <laughs>
1: yeah exactly you know we think about 317,000 workers you know coming in the country to help you know that's a big hole in our ag production so it, they're a big part of uh, basically feeding the world so
2: Um, I think when you work on this program, what's kind of interesting is you really do see the need out there. Um, This year, by far, by far, I've seen more employers call me trying to find help because they cannot find local help than ever before. Um, And we're only in January. So, I mean, it's just insane the number of people calling, uh, which we will help as many as we can. There's definitely guys to fill these positions, but it's when you work with these employers that they rely on these guys to come and help them out because they cannot find local help, you really do understand that there's a big shortage of labor in this country. And uh, that's the good thing about this program is it helps kind of ease some of that um, frustration of not getting workers, but you have crop that needs to get off the fields. The crop is not going to you know, pick themselves or harvest themselves. So uh, when you have these guys that can come in and help, it definitely makes a big impact on these employees.
1: Well, Gabriel, what else have I, or what have I not asked you that I should have, or what do you need to throw in there to, if somebody's interested in the program, basically call you the best way to get started, or what else have I missed?
2: Sure. Yeah, if, if anybody's interested in finding out more information, I'll be happy to send them the information packet. Um, they can contact me at any time. Uh, If they want to look at our website, uh, that's probably a good source of information to kind of get you started, Um, and it has our contact information on it, and it's very easy. We try to make it easy after years of uh, having different websites. We finally went down to mygoldenteam.com, so uh, you know it's very easy to remember, but uh, once you go on there, you'll have our contact information if you're interested, and there's also a lot of information on the website itself that can give you a really good idea of what the
1: Okay, cool. Yeah, sorry. It's like, yeah, mygoldenteam.com, and I was pulling up it. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff on there. So um, with that, that, I really appreciate you, uh, Gabriel, coming and helping us out and um, looking forward to, um, I guess, if we need uh, uh, some guys need some help, we'll kind of send them your way. But I appreciate you taking the time to help us.
2: I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you, Chris.
1: Hey again, this is Chris Floyd, President and CEO of the First National Bank, and I just really appreciate Gabriel coming on from uh, Golden Opportunities to really help us talk about the H2A program. It's kind of interesting, even since I uh, went through and you know, in the week or so or two, you know, getting this set up and then getting this recorded and edited. Uh, it's amazing to talk to two or three customers actually in process of of getting H2A workers. One from South Africa, one from Mexico, and to come up and work for them. And it's such an issue, I think, and I really appreciate Gabriel taking the time. But, you know, along those lines, you know, as we, you know, uh, our goal is to really help uh, you guys uh, be more successful in your businesses. And so if there's things like similar to that, there's like, you know, Hey, I need resources to help out, make sure and reach out to the bank and, and uh, talk to us. Um, you know, it's our goal to uh, every life we touch, we improve. Right. And so how can we help our customers do that? And so it's a very big part of, of, of our mission and what we're trying to accomplish. So make sure, uh, reach out if there's something like that along those lines. And, and, you know, as you talk to, uh, you know, the people you work with at the bank, you know, make sure and, uh, uh, you know, communicate those things, you know, we, you know, make sure we go through and figure out what issues and, you know, what are the roadblocks to making you more successful? And let's get those out of the way. So again, appreciate Gabriel and, uh, uh, again, his website is my golden team.com. Uh, if you have other questions, also check out our website, dot uh, windmill.com. And uh, we got things in our blog post. Uh, you can go there, either scroll down and do that, and you can check those things out as well. So, with that, thank you. We'll talk to you guys later.
0: Thanks for listening to Dreammaker, making dreams come true. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on social media at FNB Windmill and online at fnb-windmill.com. Heard a topic that could enrich someone else's life too? Be sure to share this podcast with friends and family and check back regularly for new episodes or subscribe so you never miss a show. See you soon.